Welcome everybody to Rationalism versus Mysticism, episode 14 now. Really, what a uh, an accomplishment that we're already up to 14 of these classes. Pretty amazing. So the title of this class is going to be Drawing Down Divine Grace. And I really love that idea because, you know, I, I think a lot of people have this view of, uh, of grace as a very Christian concept that the things that happen to you in your life or the good things Need, they can't really come from you. They really need to come from God. And a lot of people are opposed to that. They say, what about free will? But I think the more that we delve into this mysticism stuff, the more that we realize the whole free will argument is really not as simple as we might have thought. And that it has everything to do with what is the self. And, you know, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But grace has a lot to do with understanding, okay, I need to put my ego aside. And I need to become partners now with God in accepting whatever energy from him to do good in the world. And it's an experiential thing, I think, to experience. But again, like I like to do before delving into that, all the Kabbalistic stuff per se, I think it'll be nice to read some, uh, you know, other quotes, some Eastern stuff, some more secular stuff. And then we'll delve into the, the Kabbalistic stuff. Why do you need to accept grace? Mm -hmm. if so you're, if you're defining it kind of like that. So what do you mean accept grace? You know, uh, you said like um, like break down the, the like, I don't know what you said. Break down barrier except divine grace. Something, something along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying why why like, accept it? I mean, even if even if you're viewing yourself as a as a vessel, as an ego that has free will. If I mean, if we're if we've come to this conclusion so far in these classes that um to some degree at least uh that's all an illusion mm -hmm. it doesn't really i feel like it doesn't matter that you're viewing if you're viewing yourself like that the grace would still exactly so that's the thing I, I there's no way of me telling you you should or have to but what i will say is if you do feel this way you're gonna say i like this a lot it's like something that you enjoy feeling in a heart way because now you don't feel alone anymore you don't feel like you're fighting this fight of life as a separate self you feel now that there's i have a partner with me in everything that i'm doing i don't feel as isolated as i used to and a word that we use for that is grace and and it, it's a way of seeing yourself as more of a of an instrument or a or a vessel rather than a separate agent who is much more liable to suffering than would be uh, a person that is that knows all along that they are a vessel. That's the best thing. And it really, for me, it always boils down to what leads to reduction of suffering for you, for the world, you know, and, and towards just a, a, an intuitive feeling of this is healthy. This feels good in a healthy way to lead my life this way. That's the best, I mean, that's the best I can do. I'm sorry if it's not, uh, yeah, I hope it, I hope it suffices for now, but you'll, we'll see as we go along. Um, so I, I love this quote from Albert Einstein. I put this in the chat, actually. I think 99 times and find nothing. I stop thinking, swim in silence, and the truth comes to me, All right? So that's amazing because here's the smartest guy in the world you know, and he's saying he could think 99 times and he, nothing will come to him. And this is probably a lot to do with his 
uh, you know, mathematical equations. We're talking about Albert Einstein. So he says, I think 99 times and find nothing. I stop thinking, swim in silence, and the truth comes to me. So what I love about this is that he's probably thinking so much to try to find that eureka moment. But very often we find when that eureka moment happens is really when you stop the sitting down at the desk to try to solve the theorem and you went for a walk by the lake, took your mind off it. And then, aha, all of a sudden you realized it. This is a very spiritual thing because like we always keep saying, it's something you can't try to do. You can't try to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps because then you're just going to be standing in place. It's like somebody who is, you know, uh, you know, kind of holding on to the car as it's, to try to make it stop, even though you're not in the driver's seat. You know, it's, it's like this illusion of control, even though you don't have it. The best way to do it is to let grace take over and let it happen on its own. Stop thinking. Swim in that silence. Welcome to Albert Antar. Um, and the truth will come to you, like he says. Baruch um, Albert. The next quote is from Alan Watts. He says, this is also what we put in the chat. I had a discussion with a great master in Japan. And we were talking about the various people who are working to translate the Zen books into English. And he said, that's a waste of time. If you really understand Zen, you can use any book. You could use the Bible. You could use Alice in Wonderland. You could use the dictionary because the sound of the rain needs no translation. So I love this <laughs> simply because it reminds us that all these words that we're engaging in, all these sounds that you hear coming out of my mouth, they only can carry so much to them, so much weight. But at the end of the day, the highest level to get to is almost when the words stop having a meaning. So what I was telling you today in the chat, that dumb people are really the smartest. What I meant by that in that very paradoxical and strange thing that I said is I think that there's a, a very ironic intelligence and stop, stopping looking for intelligence in the classical way and starting to find it in just the meaningless seeming patterns that are emerging. So when you're able to look at everything as just dancing molecules, some might say, look how meaningless that is. They're just randomly dancing molecules. If, if string theory is true, they're just randomly uh, vibrating strings all around. And you could say either that that's completely meaningless or wow, what a beautiful grand symphony, how meaningful. So the real point of Zen, it seems, is, is not to understand a concept, but to stop trying to understand a concept and to stop trying to just be with what is right now. Uh, the next one is from the Tao Te Ching from Lao Tzu. The next two are from Tao Te Ching. True words aren't eloquent. Eloquent words aren't true. Wise men don't need to prove their point. Men who need to prove their point aren't wise, right? So this is trying to show you wisdom is not so much to do with words. We, in today's society, we think that. And I, even back then, it seems people thought wisdom is directly to do with how smart are your words. But he's saying, no, no, no. Words themselves aren't what makes wisdom. But really, it's just a kind of a way of being and a way of sitting with reality that you don't even need to put it into words, right? He continues, the master has no possessions. The more he does for others, the happier he is. 
the more he gives to others, the wealthier he is. So there's a beauty here because it's very relational. It's very much about the other. It's not focused on the self. It's not continuing to be, um, you know, wrapping around to the self, to the self, to the self. What can I gain? What kind of wisdom can I continue to amass? It's not about that. It's really simply about how can I really be a person that's in relationship with what is right now and what's here. I think that's, that's a beautiful way of looking at wisdom because so much of the wisdom that, we try to, that we're trying to acquire is for us to acquire it, to be one up on the universe. But real wisdom is stopping to try to do that and stop trying to be one up on the universe and realize because you are in relationship with it and you are the universe, you can calm down and you don't need to amass more knowledge because that's not what's going to give you real happiness. But I would argue um, a lot of times um, it helps to amass that knowledge. Yes. Einstein wouldn't have those Eureka moments if he wasn't thinking 99 times. Absolutely. And what about the, uh, the black woman? Uh... Mm, I love that. <laughs> right, he's saying that uh, I've seen God and she's black. Yeah. So all that stuff I think is absolutely right. But I think, no, that's, that's all right. At least I understood for the, for the audience's sake. But, but I, think, I think you guys are 100% right. But I think ideally it will lead you to a place or times in your life of complete mindfulness and, and ecstasy. Ecstasis meaning like we always say standing outside of it all. And that ecstasy and that being able to fully be with in that moment. can yes in that moment can be on the coattails of all that you've done and by the way that's the feeling it seems of ego death is that you're like holy cow i see now as ramdas says that suffering is grace why because all that suffering ended up being what led me to this moment of now being in peace and equanimity and it's like okay it must be that really everything that i thought was really me getting lost was really leading me to be me leading me to being found and that's a very profound and beautiful idea it's very hard to see when you're suffering but at the moment of ecstasis you're like holy cow i see it i can't believe i didn't see it before but there it is all right um the next one also from the Dao de ching sorry this one is from lao zi oh sorry also from the, the Dao de ching uh, a good traveler has no fixed plans and is not intent upon arriving. A good artist lets his intuition lead him wherever it wants. A good scientist has freed himself of concepts and keeps his mind open to what is. Right, so what we're saying here is that famous classic thing that we've been talking about, which is purposelessness, which is so anathema to the way we've been raised. We've always been raised. You need to have a purpose. You need to seek out X, Y, and Z. You need to have a goal in mind. But if you don't let that go at a certain point, then you're never going to ever arrive, right? And that's why it's so much more beautiful to see life as a, as a symphony and a dance rather than just as a continuous journey to lead you to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing because then you could just arrive right now. And if you and there are times where you can't handle that, no problem. Go go back into the game and do your thing. 
but find little moments to punctuate your day with that mindfulness where you can arrive again and arrive again and arrive again, you know? So that's why a good traveler doesn't have those fixed plans. The artist is not saying, okay, where do I, you know, want to go with his thinking mind? He lets his intuition carry him, right? He allows the elephant to lead him rather than just being the rider all the time. And the scientist completely freed himself of concepts. And that's why his mind is so open. Like we were talking about Albert Einstein. It's probably in those moments where he lets go of his fixed concepts that he's able to have the eureka moment and say, oh my God, now I see it from a different angle because I let go of the, rigid, the rigidity of the way I used to be thinking about it. Thus, the master is available to all people and doesn't reject anyone. He is ready to use all situations and doesn't waste anything. This is called embodying the light. So what does that mean? The master is available to all people and doesn't reject anyone. Right? So he, a master is a person who is not clinging and not fixed and not rigid in his way of being with the world. He's not angry when he doesn't get what he wants because he doesn't want anything. He doesn't insist on any particular future. And he's not sad about the past because he's not hung up on it. He's so in the moment that he is, he is without attachment to outcomes. Now, this doesn't mean that you should be cold and heartless and without a, a soul. I think what this means is you can dwell on, on, that, on that level at the same time as being a human being. Feel fully your feelings. But at the same time, be in touch with that part of you that's larger than it all. And don't get lost in those feelings and in, those, in the craziness of how the ocean of your life might look sometimes, a stormy ocean. Right, and, and this mess. Really yeah. I really think it could be at the same time. It's very, it's very hard to you know, really put into words. But I, th I really do believe that it can happen at the same time. And, you know, I'm sure there, there is an ebb and a flow, like a ratzov, a shov that we were talking about last week. Like, it, it definitely is a ratzov, a shov. But I think there's always a percentage. Like, even parts of your brain that are lit up, you know, are going to be percentages at the same time. It's never all or nothing, right? So the master doesn't reject anyone because he has no, you know, uh, defense mechanisms that he needs to engage in. He has no complexes. He has no uh, tender spots to his ego. And that allows him to feel like, oh my God, you know, I can just be fully open to what life is bringing me right now. He's surfing without a care in the world. He's surfing this ocean of the cosmos without saying, oh, what if I fall? What if I don't ride the wave properly? And I feel bad about last week and I didn't ride these nice waves. He's not thinking like that. He's like, yo, look, I'm riding the waves. That's amazing. Right. And he's ready to use all situations, doesn't waste anything. This is called embodying the light. So what does it mean to use all situations? I think it means that he's fully embracing whatever comes his way. Because he is saying, I don't insist. He's saying, OK, whatever comes, I accept it. And I, I, I have it come with, with love. And this is called embodying the light. I think because we associate light with this thing that's shining and this thing that's expansive and this thing that is literally there's no light without something for it to shine upon so he's embodying that light because it's like 
he is both the ray and the source now. He is embodying that light, right? He's embodying the source and the ray itself because he knows that he's not just the wave in the ocean, he's the ocean itself as well. He continues, what is a good man but a bad man's teacher? What is a bad man but a good man's job? If you don't understand this, you will get lost, however intelligent you are. It is the great secret. All right, so what is a good man but a bad man's teacher? So I think he's saying, first of all, it's all relative to each other. And if you want to be maybe now all self-righteous maybe and say, look, I'm above him and questionary, what about this? What about that? I have to isolate myself from this person and, and stave off the evils and maintain the goodness in my area. I'm not saying to get in over your head with evil, you know, because you might really get consumed. But a person who is at this level is able to see, okay, you know what? The, the good and the bad are in relationship with each other. So the good man is really a bad man's teacher and the bad man is the good man's job. So now I see suffering and I don't have to yell at God and say, why is there suffering? I can like another thing that I wrote in the chat. I could instead see that as God yelling at me and saying, why is there suffering? And saying, okay, now you be the one to be in relationship with this suffering and, and help try to relieve it. If you don't understand this, you'll get lost, right? Why are you going to get lost? Because then you're back in the game. If you're constantly on the side of white versus black and now white has to win, and you're constantly on that side of white needs to win, and if white doesn't win, it's not a racial thing. If white doesn't win, then it's all lost. And if you're insisting on this and you can't fathom the world without white winning over black, then you're... <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know, because Alan Watts is this... But, you know, the white has to win. I'm so lost in this. I could never really be in equanimity. Are you going to get lost in that? But instead, you can say it again. Yeah, no, you're right. Yes, exactly. And that's the yin and yang symbol. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's true. Um, if you don't have a sense to get lost, however intelligent you are, it is the great secret. And that's the great secret, which is, that what you think are two separate things because they mutually depend on each other and mutually arise, they really are one. So heads and tails go together. Object and surroundings go together inside and outside. And that's the great secret because if you're not fully in touch with that, you're going to keep on getting lost in the good for the sake of fighting the evil. And I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do good. What I am saying is don't do good out of the absolute need to do good. And if good is not done, then you can't continue. Be more in equanimity with what is. Take a second to take a deep breath before you jump in to go doing your good. Because otherwise, you're probably going to do a lot of evil. I'm not saying be completely passive even. I'm saying when you're doing that good. Do it with the mindfulness that ah, I see, even though I'm the good guy right now, he's the bad guy. It's like, okay, what do you want to be next time? You know, like, okay, I'm the good one and you're the bad one right now. But this is just the parts that we're playing in this. You know, all the world's a stage and all its uh, characters are players. It's something like that. All its people are players. It's like Shakespeare or something. <laughs> but, but that's really kind of the way of looking at it. If you take it too seriously, 
you're not able to play the game in a way that's fun. You're going to be so caught up in it that you're just going to not enjoy yourself, right? Any questions or comments before we move on? Okay, so now we'll move into the Kabbalistic stuff as promised. Um, so I think we're really going to try to talk about grace a lot and what does it mean for a person to be able to draw down some of that divine grace and see themselves as a vessel for it. So in Hebrew, the words are shefa elohi. It's, it's kind of like a divine influx that's constantly sustaining everything that exists. It's, a, it's an energy that's coming into reality that's providing sustenance for everything. So we mentioned in previous classes that you have what's called the kelipa and you have the um, nitzots. And that everything in the world really is made of both of, the, both of those things and nothing can exist without any thoughts in it. And if it didn't have a kilipa, it wouldn't be a physical object that seems separate to you. So first and foremost, you have to understand that the divine influx and these nitzotzot that are spread all around really are providing for the existence of all things. And I think this is beautiful because it connects so much with that pan-entheistic idea that God is in everything and everything is in God. And that you can really have a religious spiritual experience um, upon, you know, any environment, any scenario, any experience can seem godly. to you. If you only put on those proper glasses, welcome Ronnie. Um, if you put on those, that, that frame of mind that sees everything as wow, divine and expansive. And so when I'm in the ER, it's hard for me sometimes, you know, to take that perspective because there's blood everywhere and there's guts and there's, you know, human smells and excrement and different things. I see the look on your faces. Um, but the point is that there's a way of saying, OK, let me take a step back from my immediate visceral reaction to some of these things and just put on the perspective of this is all God. Everything is part of God. And I'm part of this dance over here right now. And let me do that dance. Let me cut the chicken for this old lady over here. And let me go get this guy a Band-Aid. And let me flush his IV. And let me do So it becomes something that you can put on these glasses at any time. As opposed to having a perspective of, oh, I have to do this. And after that, let me drag my feet to go. Do There's a way of living where you're able to tap more into this perspective. And that feels like grace. Um, there's an amazing story. Take it as you will. The Baal Shem Tov is said to have pointed at a cup. And all of a sudden, the cup shattered. And it was said that it then dissolved into complete nothingness. Because what the Baal Shem Tov did was he kind of removed from it its divine force. And when it lost its divine force, it had no ability to sustain itself in this physical existence. Now, do I take this literally? No. Who knows what it could mean on some mystical level? What I think it, the way I take it, is that it's trying to impress upon you this idea that everything that we know of is both spiritual and physical, and it's all a matter of how you're looking at it. And there are people who are so attuned to that, that they're capable of really, you know, having some kind of interaction with it that's paranormal. And again, I've never done that or seen that happen in front of my eyes, but you know, if it happens and someone's able to do that, God bless them. Please show me. <laughs> if you're listening, please, please come and tell me if you've ever seen this. Um, so the next thing is 
this idea of a divine force. You could call it grace. Now, now that we know that it has some form of existing in the world and it has some way of, of providing for the existence of everything, is it possible to draw down that grace and that energy to sustain our physical needs in the world, the community, the individual? So before we, we answer that, what do you guys think? What do you, what, what's your take on this idea of grace, on this divine energy? Do you relate to it at all? Doesn't sound like something that we could draw down. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. I I agree. I think so. But I think, at the same time, I think like you were saying in the beginning. It, yes. It, it could it could affect the your life. Mm -hmm. if you perceive it as as flowing versus you know not exactly exactly. But it, it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's like if you're trying too hard, you might screw it up. But yes, yeah, Harvey. Like yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. And then they start, you know, shaking. But but the point. Exactly. No, I hope not. I mean, in a, in a way, it might be. You know, it might be that that this is that's one extreme form of it. But I think. The way that I try to take it is, you know, this is something that is a perspective, but it's also something where I kind of have to suspend a lot of my ego perspective. So, so much of it is my ego is going to be cynical. It's going to be cranky. It's going to have all these different things that's going to act as barriers to ego accepting exact moment right now with all of the good, the bad, and the ugly. So when you're able to let go of that, you're more capable of tapping into this. So now this is where I see a little bit of a difference in the phraseology and the language that Judaism versus Buddhism will use. Yeah, Victor. Yeah, I think that's when the writer has to override the other. Uh, so logic to try to overcome the uh, feeling or emotional mm -hmm. feelings that can be empowering. Yeah. To talk to yourself, to say it, it's going to be okay. You know, like that mindfulness that you bring to yourself very often is accompanied with words of it's going to be okay, it's all temporary, there's nothing wrong, I agree, that's, that's beautiful. Um, another point is that in Judaism, I feel like there's a lot more of an active role that it's, that's portrayed, whereas in Buddhism, there's a lot more of that passive role that's portrayed, and it's kind of like do less or remove of, versus in Judaism, it's like try more and do more. And I think both are correct at different times when you're speaking to different audiences especially, but also to yourself at different times. There are times where the thing that will open your ego to an expensive experience is more responsibility, more doing, more proactivity. So where does knowledge and understanding come into those two points? What do you mean by that? So if, uh, if the Buddhism, if the Buddhist um, philosophies to kind of you know take yourself away and into the minimalistic mm -hmm. approach, um, do, you, do you take do you take do you make less of an effort to try to understand? Uh, what's going on in front of you? I'm mean, mm. saying just accept it, just you know, feel just kind of see what's coming in. But I feel like it's you know, in Judaism, it's you make it more of a push to you know, yeah, understand it. You know, to, to, to break things down. Then yes. So you're saying physics, logic, whatever. Yes. Yeah, so what now of like of amassing knowledge? Because so that's the thing is I think both are important. 
And both are forms of knowledge that are important in different scenarios in your life. And both will come in handy in different times. You know what I mean? Like, so there are times where the best thing you can tell me is, Michael, don't just do something. Sit there. That's the famous name of a book. Don't just do something. Sit there. Relax. Calm down. Just do nothing. Most of the time, it happens to be that's what I need to be told because my default is doing, doing, doing. Especially a lot of people in our society today. But there are people that are so lazy sometimes and they don't do anything and they need to be told, it seems, to really open themselves to a bigger experience. Go do something. Get off your butt, you know, and go go act. And that's something that's very important, uh, you know, for all of us to realize there are different scenarios where we need each one, right? Um, but yeah, I think there, you know, there's it's it's a hard thing because it become you reach that ineffable place. You reach that place where you can't really put it into words. It might even be acting. So this kind of so this kind of thing is going on. I mean, you take it for a device. Right. So what's going on? It is what it is. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, okay. Let me let me see what's going on. What's what's happening over here? Mm -hmm. you know? uh, do you understand? I think I think so. That, that uh, is it more of just accepting what is or trying to say, you know, what? let me let me be more vigilant about what's happening. Let me try to change things. So I think curiosity is can, can be mindful curiosity. I think it could be curiosity in the moment of just like an amazement and a wonder of what is. And then curiosity can also be a curiosity of like, you know, I need to understand this so that I can change it, you know? So, and I think both are welcome and both are beautiful, just in different, you know, different strokes for different folks and different times in your life, right? That's, I mean, that's, that's the, that's what resonates with me, you know? Um, so now we'll, we'll get to the next part of it, which is, I think, a big part of everything, which is the Sadiq. In, in the Kabbalistic tradition, of course, you have this person, and I'm sure if you ever go to one of their meals, they'll have this long table, and the Sadiq or the rabbi will have their big halah, and he'll give it out to everyone. Everyone's like asking for a piece, and what is that all about, and what's going on? Who is this Sadiq? Why is he so important in, this, in these Kabbalistic traditions, especially in Hasidut? So... We talked about Devakut in the past few weeks, the idea of really clinging to God, cleaving to God, and that it has so much to do with mindfulness in a way. Like it's, it's almost like the Jewish equivalent of mindfulness because it's like clinging to God in any, any given moment is basically that, is trusting in God in this moment. Um, and like we've spoken about, there's a transformation that can happen when you have this level of intimacy with God. It can lead you towards a place where you really feel different now and more capable of helping the people around you. Um, but the thing is with the, with the Sadiq, we're going to talk about that if you feel that God is too distant and too much of an abstract concept for you, and you want more of the elementary course in a way, there's nothing wrong with cleaving to a Sadiq. There's nothing wrong with, uh, with clinging to your rabbi or your Sadiq who will lead you towards that experience of God. And he's not claiming to be God himself in his ego form, but he is a person that can lead you towards that experience of God. Um, and of course, there's claims of a lot of these, you know, not just in Judaism, but in a lot of these traditions of clairvoyance and healing and different abilities, take that as you will. But I think as you get into the mystical experience in the mystical realm, a lot of these things become more believable. So you talk to a guy who's tripping on mushrooms, and I'm sure he'll have a certain perspective 
of like, what does it mean that this guy is a healer? And he'll be like, dude, I experienced in that moment that this guy healed me in a psychological way and maybe even in a physical way. It looked that way. It looked like I had a gash on my Who knows what they were experiencing? Um, and the clairvoyance stuff, it, it might seem in retrospect like a random thing that somebody told you somehow you know, weaved its way into the, the next moment and you saw how it was almost, even maybe with even, without even them knowing, it felt prophetic because it felt almost predictive of the next thing that was going to happen. And that's the famous story from Alan Watts, you know, that uh, the guy, blue collar worker, goes every single day to a, uh, sorry, it was just, uh, yeah, maybe blue collar worker, goes every day to a cafe and he says, I'm going to meet my guru today. And he goes to the cafe and he, the first guy he meets, he goes, you're going to, he says to himself, this guy's my guru. And every Sunday he, he sees the guy there and the guy is not a guru. He's just some guy. And every, he says, oh, something about a donut and he'll say something about coffee. And then by the end of the, however many weeks, the, the guy who sought to find alignment became enlightened and everyone went around there about their merry way. But the point of it is there's the unknowing guru and there's the unknowing way of like, it was so comical almost how. That's what brought the person to enlightenment. But I think that's a big thing is that what you think of as logical and what you think of as conscious doesn't need to really come into play with the mystical because anything, even things that are not purely logical can lead you towards an expansive and enlightened experience. So at a certain point, you might want to let go of that logic. And like we spoke about last week, even morality, morality being like the, um, the payload of the spaceship that falls away once the spaceship is already in the stratosphere, you know, and it could let itself go. Um, these Sadiqim were purported to have secrets of the Torah, secrets of the natural world. The Sadiq was always acting for the sake of God. He was clearly a person that had to be minimally egoistic, a person that is able to be a vessel in, in every sense of the term, not for selfish or self-serving purposes. And, of course, that's what we hope for. That's what you hear about the Baal Shem Tov. You know, it's hard to find them today. Um, but there are people who, of course, were helping others in the community. So I, I love that famous story that Rabbi Sachs tells about a, uh, a man came to a town and he said, I want to find the Sadiq of this town. I want to find the, the rabbi. And it was a Friday. And all the people said, the rabbi, he, on Fridays, he goes up to Shamayim. To, to plead for us before Shabbat. And then right before Shabbat comes, the Sadiq comes back down from Shamayim to celebrate Shabbat with us. And the, the people uh, all said this to, to this man. And this man was like, come on. He was like rolling his eyes. So he said, all right, I want to meet the Sadiq. I can't find it. Let me just go for a walk in the woods. And he sees uh, there, the, there's the, the Almanaz house, the... Um, the widow of the town, she's all the way out in the woods and she has burning fire. And she, and he asks her who cuts this wood for you. She says, the rabbi comes every Friday and cuts the wood for me. Oh, sorry. I think she says, I don't know who does it. Some guy just drops off the wood for me. And then the guy found that it was the rabbi the whole time, every Friday, cutting, chopping this wood for the woman, not telling anybody and then giving it to her. So to the reason this is so inspiring and beautiful. And then what did this guy remark to himself, this logical person? When he went back and, and then the rabbi came to the town, the people said, oh, the rabbi's back from heaven. The rabbi's back from heaven. The guy said, indeed he is. Because that's really what heaven is in a way. 
it's it's a, a way of living in this world, you know, with a certain unbelievable perspective of being in such a beautiful relationship with God's creations, with including human beings. Um, so that's helping others in the community. So now Debekut to the Sadiq, this is a quote. Through a person's attachment to the Sadiq, this is from Byron Sherwin, he will have delight in God's light, which reaches the Sadiq, and from him is drawn down to those who cleave to him. So they always talk about the Sadiq as a tsinor, as a pipeline to God's grace. So it really is a guru, right? To me, this is really what it's just kind of saying. Um, and we have such a negative view of this people worship stuff. But if the guru is true, and they really are a good guru, they really can bring you towards enlightenment. If, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe some gurus will, will work for some people, some won't work for the other people, you know, that's just the way it is. But the life of the Sadiq, in a way, hovers between the Ayin and the Yesh, between the mystical nothingness that he's experiencing through meditation, and maybe even through acts of kindness, and the Yesh and his involvement in the physical world. So I guess the acts of kindness will often fall under the Yesh. But he has this Ratzov Ashov element to himself. And he's in this liminal space between the, the holy and the mundane, bringing the holiness to the mundane. And that's why he's the conduit, because he's like the bodhisattva that we've mentioned in the past. He's this sadiq who is not going to run away into his own enlightenment and get lost in it, and that's it. He's going to maintain his ability to continue coming back to the community and to continue having a relationship with the people in order to try to bring them to enlightenment. So the tzinot is this conduit for divine grace. The sadiq is going to cleave simultaneously to God and to his community. So the pipe above is, you can imagine the pipe going from heaven to earth. Above, the, the pipe is enveloped by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, And below, it's embraced by the community. And the Sadiq is like the, the avatar. He's like the bridge between the physical world and the spirit world, right? And, and it's amazing because he has a foot in both realms. He's able to really be a part of both. And it doesn't, one doesn't have to be at the expense of the other. And it's almost like, wow, what a beautiful way of living. Uh, a real sadiq keeps the pipeline totally clean from ego. Ego could be seen almost like the gunk inside of the pipeline. And unless you're constantly cleaning it and constantly vigilant to remove that ego, it's not going to be completely clean. And that's why the hachamim always compare Moshe Rabbeinu to a lens through which the light could shine without any aberrations, because the lens is so clear without a single scratch on it. Not every other Navi, not so. They weren't able to really be such a clear lens for HaKadosh Baruch Hu's light. Um, you need this abject humility. You need this real, complete self-negation to remove the boundaries between the mystic and his own self. right? And, and that's a very interesting uh, line from Byron Sherwin that Removing the boundaries between the mystic and his own self. His own self being his real self, the realist self, which is really this godly soul or this highest level of yourself. And once he comes to realize this, humility is a natural byproduct. Humility is not something you have to try to do. Right? Ideally, humility will lead you towards this, but this also cultivates humility, as you can imagine. 
it's like, of course I should be. I mean, like, obviously, because there is actually, I'm nothing without all of this other thing. I'm like not even a, a little speck of dust compared to the totality of what is in space-time, right? You think about from that perspective, and, and it makes it so much more of a, of a way of like really, really perceiving reality in a, in a divine way. Because when you're so stuck in your ego, you're small and you're limited in your view. When you expand that view and you say, oh my God, I was one note in the whole symphony this whole time. I can't believe it. That makes a very big difference. Um, paradoxically, the person is going to achieve spiritual supremacy seemingly over other people. But it's, again, we don't have to compare. But, but this is because he's cultivating his own loneliness. When he's cultivating his own humility through continuing on this path of mysticism. So every time your ego is blown to smithereens and you come back to it, it says to itself, holy cow, it's hilarious. I can't believe I let myself think that I was a separate thing. I can't believe it. I can't believe I let myself think that I was important or that I was some kind of holier than now or anything you could think that's egotistical. I can't believe I did that. And it's hilarious. Um, all abilities are rooted in divine grace, not his own abilities. So what this means is, I, I think, these are not the abilities that he is cultivating through his ego, like we're saying. It's not something he's trying to do. It's something he realizes all the goodness really was coming from this higher self the whole time. And it was really by stepping out of his own way that he was able to step into the path of God, right? So that's why I really think the whole proactive versus passive discussion, so much of it is to do with stepping out of your own way. And then, and then you be, be active, right? So the passivity leads to the active. It really kind of, they go hand in hand. And when you're balanced, you kind of feel into that more, right? So a person who is not being neurotic at the moment, and he's just vibing with the what he's doing, he's much more easily able to connect with this energy of unbelievable. You know, I'm able to just not even think and act in a way that I feel like God is acting through me. And, and I, I feel both active and passive at the same time in some ineffable dance. Now, the next thing is the bind of humility, right? So there's always this bind. There's always this difficulty in discussing humility because let's say you're a sadiq and you acknowledge your humility. Are you truly humble now? Right? So everyone always says, oh, Moshe wrote that about himself. Is that really humble? And then you say to yourself, okay, you know what? So for, for Moshe's example, I think maybe in a way that is humility because he's not second guessing himself like, oh, I'm so humble. It's not even him who's writing. It's God telling him to write that in a way. But for Moshe Rabbeinu to write that about himself is like, all right, this is just matter of factly writing something. I'm not going to get all in my head about how, how humble I am, how great I am. Um, so like we always say, think of yourself less, focus on the mission and stop focusing on yourself. Humility is a natural byproduct of continuing to throw yourself into the spiritual experience, continuing to throw yourself into the mission at hand. 
So now what is this mission? What is the task that everyone is, is uh, being drawn towards spiritually? It's to stimulate the flow from the realm of the sefirot downwards. This is the task really of the, of the Sadiq. He pulls the influx into the Shekhinah, which like we said is the lowest of the ten sefirot, and into the human realms through the Shekhinah. He channels that influx directly to the community's needs, whatever they may be. And it's a very unique capability of his because he has to be, so we were just learning with Rabbi Hidri Gemara and Masechet Berachot, that when Rabban Gamliel was going to apologize to the Yeshua, he went and he saw on the walls some soot. And he went like this. He felt the soot. And he said, are you a blacksmith? He said, yeah, bro. I'm, I've been a, a blacksmith all this time. How did you not know? And he said, and, and he basically said, Woe to the, the generation that you are their leader in a way, because you're so out of touch with the spiritual, so the physical needs of the people. You're so stuck in your ivory tower. So the Sadiq, the real ideal Sadiq, has to be a person that's so in touch with the community's needs that he's able to, to shunt the divine grace to it. So it's an amazing you know, proof to you that it's not supposed to be somebody that's stuck in their ivory tower. It's a person who's sadiq betoch ha'ir, as we always say. The beracha is like the reciting scene as hamshacha of the divine influx. That the beracha is a way of pulling God's, you know, divine energy into the world. You want, you, you want to say, oh, just a funny thought, okay. Yeah, sure. You can tell me, you can tell me later after class. <laughs> See me after class. <laughs> Always wanted to say that. Um, so the beracha is like, you know, you, you see these rabbis saying a beracha for like 45 minutes. Like, what in the world is this guy possibly doing? What I suspect is they're probably, you know, really doing something sephirotic with, with the sephirot in their minds. Or they're doing something where they're having so many different kavanot to try to really pull down some of this energy from God into the world. And, you know, it's beyond my really comprehension to understand because I've never tried it personally to say for that long, but I'm sure it's an amazing meditation. You know, I'm sure it's an unbelievable experience. You could say, and, and with like such a beautiful, you know, heart to it. Saul and I were listening to a song where there's a guy rapping and he says like the whole body and is that what you were thinking of? No. <laughs> The guy says, like, the whole boy in the in the rap. And I'm like, is it? I hear the beginning. He's like, boy, right now, I'm like, is he just going to say the whole boy in Sure enough, he just said the whole boy in And it was awesome, though. It was hilarious. And, you know, there's different ways of kind of bringing new life to these berachot. And I think this is a beautiful way of doing it. Um, very primal imagery. Of course, a lot of these things uh, with, with Kabbalah become very primal again. So they say that the Sadiq is suckling the divine energy from the Shekhinah, just like a baby suckles the brother, the mother's breast, like the breast milk coming from the mother's breast is equivalent to the Sadiq suckling from the Shekhinah. And the milk, of course, being that divine energy and the divine grace that's supposed to be flowing to him in the community. Um, and obviously, when you have a mom who is breastfeeding, if the mom doesn't breastfeed for long enough, she won't produce any milk, right? If the baby's not suckling, no milk will be produced. So the, the analogy that they give is, is very accurate because they say, if there's no Sadiq now, 
there's not going to really be an influx because we need somebody that's going to show God, I'm going to be your partner. But if everybody's constantly lost in their egos, altogether lost in their egos and fighting with each other, then nobody's suckling at the teat of the divine. And therefore, nobody is drawing down that divine energy, right? Um, that's why they say even the name Shaddai of God has to do with Shaddaim, has to do with breasts, because it's this imagery of God as this, the sustainer, the one who's giving us this type of energy. Um, and it's funny because this type of primal imagery very often appears in mystical visions, specifically psychedelic visions. So I remember Michael Pollan in his book, um, How to Change Your Mind, which I always quote, uh, he, he has a vision of himself and he says, there I was on the birthing table and I pushed and I pushed and I pushed and I gave birth to myself. And it's like, that is quite profound because really kind of what I think what, what that meant in his vision was it's you doing the whole thing. It's you playing this game with yourself. That's very much what the mystical experience makes you feel. And then the funniest moment is the gotcha. You know, it's like when somebody uh, plays a practical joke on you and then you realize it was a practical joke. And you say, dude, I can't believe you got me. You know, it's like, I can't believe I got me. How is that even possible? I have no idea. Um, has to be experienced. Uh, so now I want to quote this uh, Tao Te Ching one more time. Another thing that I found a little bit, you know, uh, relevant to this particular part of the discussion. He says, I drift like a wave on the ocean. I blow as aimless as the wind. I am different from ordinary people. I drink from the great mother's breasts. I thought that was very interesting. He said, uses the exact same imagery as this Kabbalistic stuff does for the Sadiq, but he's using it in a way of like, I think by being completely purposeless and aimless, that's his way of drawing from the divine grace. To him, that's so, we keep coming to this Eastern versus Western position. For the Sadiq, it seems so much about affecting a change in the community for the better. For the Easterner, for the guy in the Tao Te Ching, for Lao Tzu, it means just simply being fully present with what is and fully accepting it without needing to change anything. And both are true, right? Both are a form of suckling from the mother's breasts, as long as you're doing it mindfully, and as long as that's the experience, right? Drawing down divine influx is not primarily achieved through intellectual contemplation, but by physical action like mitzvot, even sexual activity is capable of giving us this experience of drawing down divine grace. Um, of course, with the right person at the right time. Uh, but I think the beauty here is that it's forcing you into direct involvement in the world, in Judaism at least, where it's saying, and I think Buddhism as well within the Bodhisattva tradition, it's saying, stop trying to isolate yourself. You know, Ram Das talked about, he says, I used to think that, you know, uh, going to the West brought me down because he would feel really high and really spiritual when he would meditate for months and months and months uh, in his ashram. And he said, yeah, going to the West uh, made me, you know, it kind of brought me down. Visiting my parents brought me down. Eating pizza brought me down. He's like, so what are you going to do now? You're just going to not live? 
So he says, maybe the key is to just try to cultivate that high level with whatever you're doing, as mundane as it seems and as physical as it seems. So never take too lightly any given scenario. Right? And that's why we spoke about last week that the Kohen Gadol is uh, you know, going up to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and, and God is asking the Kohen Gadol for a blessing. And that's when they say, oh, you know, never take the blessing of any particular person too lightly. I think it's the same thing with any person that you encounter. If you really can make an effort, or not even an effort, just kind of let that perspective fall upon you, where you see the divine in another person's eyes, and you look at them and you say, I see you as a face of God. And I feel inclined right now to treat you as such with the utmost respect. The way I would treat God if he were standing right in front of me. Because in a way, he is standing right in front of me. It's easy to do that with certain people. It's not as easy with other people. You try your best or you don't try, whichever helps you achieve this. Um, the Sadiq, interestingly enough, in this tradition, because the temple is destroyed, because the Beit HaMikdash is no longer, the Sadiq is able to replace the Beit HaMikdash as the repository for the divine influx. So now the Sadiq is like we quoted Zusha a couple weeks ago. I now will become the resting place, the chariot, the throne for God. God, please dwell upon me. Or like Thich Han would say, to say, you know, when I'm breathing and I'm sitting, I say, you know, to, he would say to the Buddha to, to, to use my lungs and breathe with my lungs and to sit with my back. And you could say that to God. You say, God, you know, please use my hands to do good. Use my eyes to see the, the important things to see. Right. And that's that's a beautiful way of seeing your body as now the resting place for the divine. And you know what? The thing that helps me with this is, oh, you get on erotic, but I don't know, I'm not. Da, 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 da. You realize in a certain mystical sense, it already is. No matter what you do, you already are a resting place for God. Knowingly or unknowingly. So you can just let go of all that neuroticism. And you could just have those little moments like, whoa. Now it's really God praying to himself when I pray. All right, that's what we've been speaking about. The Sadiqim would often make amulets that they would give to their followers. Those who were undergoing a psychedelic trip, very similarly, were often taught to bring with them a, a certain significant object. So some people often bring, uh, you know, I know one guy brought a Torah with him before a psychedelic trip. Not personally, I read this in Michael Pond's book. And he brought the Torah and he put it on his lap. And the whole time he was cradling that Torah. And he felt, he said during the psychedelic trip, that God was holding him and the Torah in his lap. And it's such a beautiful, such a tender image for us. Other people would bring pictures of people that they want to work through issues with in their lives. So they bring a picture of their mom or their dad or their significant other. And they look at it during the psychedelic trip. Some people for five minutes, some people for 45 minutes straight, just looking at the picture. And that whole time, there's some kind of psychodynamic thing going on inside that's helping them with this person or this, this thing that they're looking at. So that to me, that's why, you know, the, the idea of an amulet used to really turn me off. But I think it's a beautiful thing. As long as you're not using it to worship the amulet itself. 
I think that amulets could be a way of grounding you. They could be a way of reminding you of what's important, right? Physical objects are all around us. Might as well use them for the betterment, for the, for the good. As long as you don't ascribe too much magical power to them and then, you know, sell them for exorbitant amounts of money. I'm not saying to do that. Um, exactly. Exactly. Um, so the Shekhinah, <laughs> so the Shekhinah is, is dwelling within the Sadiq. He's speaking from within the Sadiq, right? That's what they say. And, and of course, we know from, from the Hachamim, they say Moshe Rabbeinu, that the Shekhinah would speak mitoch gerono shel Moshe Rabbeinu. It would speak from his throat itself. Um, and because the sefirot correspond to colors, the Sadiq would often meditate. We're done? Oh, we got a few more minutes? We're almost done. Um, so, so like we're saying, the, the, the Shekhinah would, would speak from Geronosh Shel Moshe Rabbeinu. They would say the same thing about a Sadiq, that the Sadiq, you know, I guess Lehav deal from Moshe, but still on a certain level, if he is so removed of his ego, and he's speaking to the people. You could see the people are saying, wow, this guy's giving us divine advice. And, uh, I, you know, I would hope a person who's on that level with no ego, really all that's left is God. Um, we said that because the sefirot are corresponding to colors, the sadiq would often meditate on a particular color for the drawing forth of energy from a particular sefirah. So that's really interesting. If they want to connect to chesed or gibura or what have you, they would meditate on specific colors. We're going to talk, I think, a little bit more about that in future weeks. We're going to talk, the next class is going to be called Prophetic Kabbalah. So I think that's really interesting. I started reading the chapter on that. Super, super cool. Um, but the key here is to, to say, okay, you know, there's different ways. And it's almost like synesthesia, right? You talk about hearing uh, colors or seeing sounds. And sometimes the two are intermixed. So I see a little bit of that with the Sefirot concept, that there's colors associated. There's other things that you might not expect to be associated with certain elements of the divine experience. And you could kind of feel into those through meditation on particular colors. Um, the Shekhinah is said to dwell within each of the limbs of the mystic. Um, and as we mentioned, the Tiknat had medita meditation of before, that the human body is re replacing the temple and that you could ask God to dwell in your arms and do such and such, or dwell in your legs and do such and such beautiful meditations. Um, this even can go so far as to what Rabbi Foreman says, which is that if you look at the, uh, the structure of the Mishkan, right, you can look at it, you say, okay, what, what is the structure? In the very center, you have the Kodesh HaKodashim, of course, but the, the, the mouth corresponds to the Mizbah HaNehoshet, right? The place, and it says, at Korbani Lahmi, that's where Hashem eats. And then, you know, uh, on the layout of the Mishkan, above that is going to be the Mizbah HaZahav. Yasimu Ketorah Be'apecha. They will put Ketorah on my Af, says God. So we heard about food, we heard about Af. Mouth, nose. What are the two eyes? The, the Menorah, which provides light. And the Lechem Apanim, which the bread is only supposed to be seen for most of the time. And the bread is not supposed to be eaten or consumed. Right? So you have the mouth, the nose, the eyes. I'm probably forgetting some more, but there's, there's a whole bunch of kelim in the Mishkan that so beautifully can correspond to God's face. hiding. Oh, sorry. And then the most important one, the Aron corresponding to God's, almost his mind. And the cloud, you know, kind of hovering above it is almost like the soul 
right? So there's, there's ways of seeing a face hiding in the Mishkan. And this is, you know, so interesting to me because this is the reason that the Sefirot correspond to our bodies. Because it's saying, look no further than the self if you're looking for God. It's an inward journey when you're looking for God. So I'm not saying to become ego-obsessed, but I'm saying look inwards and do that inner journey and, and find a way to, to correspond to things that you've been going through to experiences that God is having through you. Strange sounding, but hopefully, you know, it's something that we'll connect to one day even more. Um, when you have Kavanah during your prayer, when the Sadiq has Kavanah during his prayer, each letter is like drawing forth energy from the supernal levels and supernal realms. And this is so that the, each letter is going to be able to ascend to the supernal realms and have an influence on God's plans. The community was, in a way, the patient of the Sadiq, who was seen as the healer, viewing the human as a psychophysical whole. Today we have this biopsychosocial model in medicine, but the Sadiq was able to look at a person in a way as really both uh, a psychological person, a spiritual person, as well as a physical whole. Um, and the famous, we know, Chinese doctors in the ancient times, when they would go to diagnose an illness, they would go to the patient's home on purpose to look around the home and say, how much balance is there between order and chaos? Some people like Jordan Peterson, I think, talks about this. He says, like, some people you go in there, like, they can't wait for you to be the heck out of their house. Everything's like, there's like plastic on the, on the couches and you're putting, you want to put the, the, the glass down and they like run to put a coaster right under it. Those are people, too much order. No wonder you're sick. Other people, you go and you, you, it's like a pigsty. You can't wait to get the heck out of there. And you say like, the smell, a little weird. There's stuff all over the place. Uh, there's things that should have been painted over a long time ago. Everything's a mess. No wonder you're sick. No wonder you're disheveled. Um, a lot of things have to do with more than just your physical body. There's the spiritual element to your whole surroundings. That's why they, they say, when you change your place, you change your, in a way, the downflowing of divine energy, which is literally what mazal means, like nozel, to flow down. Um, dangers to the sadiq were present due, due to his proximity to darkness, right? The sitra ahra, this demonic force that might exist. Um, I came up with this beautiful quote, I, I think it's beautiful, on my own, that I just thought of at one time a couple of weeks ago. Gaze into the darkness, but do not let it consume you. Right, so this is what a sadiq has to be capable of. You, when you're approaching the mystical, you have to you have to accept at a certain point the evils that are going on. And if you're God now, if you're accepting that, you feel almost like you need to own all the suffering of the world and all the evil of the world. But don't allow that to consume you. You know that famous scene in Avatar, where the Avatar is taking away the Fire Lord's bending, and like the Fire Lord's uh, light is kind of consuming the Avatar. Until he has a very little amount of light left, and then all of a sudden the avatar's light goes and rebounds and completely overwhelms the light of the fire lord. And it's you almost may like spoiled that for many people. Say it again. You may have spoiled that for, for some people. Oh, I'm sorry, Ronnie. <laughs> no, I finished it. I finished it. You're good. Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> Spoiler alert after the fact. <laughs> uh, it's all right. You're learning more in this class than you would from Avatar. No, I'm kidding. Avatar is much better than me. Uh, but bottom line, there's something to be said about this, this ability to sit with all the evils that exist and be at peace with them and not be fully fighting against them, but also not being consumed by them. Because it's very easy to be 
overwhelmed by the darkness that we see in the world. Um, and we, we, of course, know famously Nadav and Avihu, what was their issue? They witnessed HaKadosh Baruch Hu to an amazing level on Har Sinai. They were among the 70 elders who went up part of the mountain and they saw, it says, under God's feet, They saw a sapphire brickwork and the purity of the heavens under God's feet. And it says, to certain types of people within Ben Israel, it seems like these uh, important people, Hashem did not smite them down, even though it seems like, because it says, next, what does it say? They gazed upon God and they ate and drank. It seems a little bit disrespectful according to Hanambam. I guess you eat and drink. Different ways of interpreting this. But now Nadav and Avihu had this very profound experience. They wanted more. But this time they saw Moshe only was the one who, did, who ascended into God's cloud and into God's fire. And now what do they do? They want to replicate that. They bring in Esh Zara later on in the Torah. Because they wanted more. They wanted what Moshe had, but they weren't yet worthy. So it's unfortunate that they were consumed by the fire that they were so longing to get close to. right? And I think this is part of the dangers of the spiritual experience is if you get too far in over your head too quickly and you don't have a tradition and a systematic basis for what you're doing and you don't have a shaman leading you, you don't have a guru or rabbi, whoever it is, you're, you might be in for quite the ride. Um, Adam's sin, famously, according to this Kabbalistic tradition, caused a cataclysm and a distancing of man from God. And that's why they say, Sadiq Yesod Olam, the Sadiq, who was like corresponding to the Yesod element of the Sefirot, needed to be metaken, this cataclysm that happened way back when. And like we said, the Eastern traditions don't really have this idea of a cataclysm even though some of the Western traditions do. Both, I think, are beautiful. Um, but the Sadiq now is holding on to both worlds and saying, I'm going to bridge that gap between the physical and the spiritual world. We have a question from Florence. Let me read it. Um, side note, it seems like this type of thinking uses gendered imagery. So I wonder if it implies that the feminine is relegated to the primal physical literal realm since it used, uh, is used as a metaphor. Uh, while the tzaddik metaphorically drinks from the divine to achieve a figurative type of nourishment, it seems like it sets up a contrast between the physical and the transcendent as feminine and masculine. It's a great question. I don't think that feminine versus masculine should it can, could be split up as physical versus spiritual. I think the spiritual realm itself has both masculine and feminine elements to it, just like the, the, the physical world does. And that there's, it's, it's not, you know, when I say masculine and feminine, I mean it in a kind of traditional sense where I'm not saying it's men versus women. I'm saying it's things that traditions have traditionally noted to be more of a feminine energy versus more of a masculine energy, very much like a yin and a yang. You know, they say that yin represents to, sorry, is, corresponds to the feminine, and yang uh, corresponds to the masculine. You don't have to use that, those specific terms if they don't resonate. You can say uh, negative and positive, dark and light. You know, I, I'm not trying to say 
women are negative. That's clearly not what I'm saying. So of course, Sadiq could be a Sadiq, exactly. And there, there's no need to, to say this about a person. It's just that there are qualities that are more passive and more aggressive, more laissez-faire versus more proactive. And those are, have traditionally been associated with feminine versus masculine. And that's not to say men are one way and women are another way. But I think this is a beautiful thing because you are pointing out something very important, which is that the hachamim corresponded the lowest of the 10 sefirot to a fundamentally feminine uh, uh, sefirah, which is shekhinah. Specifically because the shekhinah is like the womb that's going to birth um, you know, certain divine energies into the world. Or it's like the breast that's going to secrete its milk for the human beings to consume uh, in this world. So I hope that answers your question, Florence. Really fantastic question. Um, but, you know, I, I would love to hear if anybody else has any questions or comments, because I know we did a lot in this class from the Eastern stuff to the, to the more Kabbalistic stuff. But I think all of it really does tie into each other. Um, if you don't get lost in the semantics of it and you allow yourself to say, okay, what, you know, what kind of art are they trying to paint here? What kind of narrative or mythology are they trying to express to me to open myself to a certain kind of experience? And like I always say, I would feel very bad if this really, this class ended with my, you know, just my words and you, this didn't affect you in your practical daily lives. My hope is that it will carry over to your experiences in this world and that'll carry over to your feeling of wow you know this world really is more than meets the eye i'm going to meditate more i'm going to experience god more and not get lost in in what today i see as such a reductionistic uh flavor to the world where everybody is reducing reality to it's only just this right it's only just the what meets the eye even though clearly there are perspectives you can take and drugs you can take and experiences you can have that will show you that that's not necessarily the case. Uh, Florence, thank you for, for listening. And, you know, thank you for, for um, I'm glad you asked that question. Fantastic. Yeah, anybody else? Questions or comments? Thank you very much. I'm so glad. I'm glad to hear Fadal anytime. Of course. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. I hope you guys enjoyed. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure.